Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. I love a good spoof show, especially when it is actually funny. And that show was absolutely hilarious. And may I just say that our timing is perfect. What do you mean? Our timing in seeing the show, it was perfect. Given what was last night? What was last night? Broadway backwards. Okay, you're going to have to fill me in on what this is. Oh, it's so much fun. Basically, it's a great evening of song and dance where the gender roles are flipped. All the funds raised are for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. They do a lot of spoofs and reinterpretations of big musical numbers. Wow, that sounds amazing. It really is. This year they had like Bonnie Milligan doing Maria, Corbin Blue doing Mine Hair, Leah Salonga doing Love Who You Love, and it was all hosted by Jen Kalella, who opened the show with Willkommen. I wish we could have gone. And come to think of it, I think I did hear something about this. I'm pretty sure a bunch of our cast was in this. I'm sure they were. I would love to go next year. Not only is it a great show, but it's also for a great cause. Their finale, One Day More, was a great reinterpretation and a modern take on the number, which just has, just so powerful and moving. There is nothing like a show that can not only spoof other shows, but also successfully reinterpret others. Which also makes the show from tonight even more perfect. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the uproarious musical, Something Rotten. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. And on today's show, we are discussing a musical, a musical, and nothing's as amazing as a musical, especially the show on our docket today, of course, Something Rotten. This rib-tickling show rolled up on Broadway and left no stone unturned or unspoofed during its two-and-a-half-hour duration. With its quick wit clever mockery of Broadway musicals themselves, and, of course, the insulting of one of the greatest figures in the dramatic arts, this show was one giant love letter to the theater. But before we can piece together what the future holds, we first have to sort out the past and lay the groundwork. The musical began with an idea that brothers Carrie and Wayne Kirkpatrick had since the 1990s. They finally joined with John O'Farrell to write several songs and presented those songs and a treatment to the producer, 
Kevin McCollum in 2010. The team then joined with Casey Nicola, who brought in several of the actors, resulting in the workshop in 2014. Something Rotten was expected to have a pre-Broadway tryout at the Fifth Avenue Theater in Seattle, Washington in April 2015. However, when a Broadway theater became available, Kevin McCollum decided to open the show without the Seattle tryout. Quote, David Armstrong, artistic director of Fifth Avenue Theater, said that after the positive buzz surrounding the musical's workshop in October 2014, he and Mr. McCollum began discussing the possibility of the show bypassing Seattle in favor of Broadway, end quote. The developmental lab took place in New York City in October 2014 with Casey Nicola as director and choreographer. This is the perfect time to meet our design team. Book by John O'Farrell. Music, lyrics, and conceived by Wayne and Carrie Kirkpatrick. Directed and choreographed by Casey Nicola. Scenic design by Scott Pask. Costume design by Greg Barnes. Lighting design by Jeff Kreuter. Sound design by Peter Helensky. Hair design by Josh Marquette and makeup design by Milagro Medina Cerdera. The show set up at the St. James Theater on April 22, 2015, where it would scramble eggs for 708 shows until its closing on January 1, 2017. The show would go on to have a U.S. national tour and a non-equity tour, as well as be staged around the world, including in South Korea, Sweden, the Czech Republic, and currently at the English Theater in Frankfurt, Germany through the 31st of March, 2024. That season, the show would garner 10 Tony Award nominations and come away with one that evening for Best Actor in a Supporting Role in a Musical for Christian Borle, who played William Shakespeare. So grab your puffy pants, your finest feathered hat, and let us head back to the Renaissance. The musical opens with the minstrel welcoming the audience to the English Renaissance. He tells the audience that not Everybody is getting what he wants, referring to Nick Bottom, who runs a theater troupe with his brother Nigel. They are rehearsing for their upcoming play, Richard II, while William Shakespeare, referred to as the Bard, is opening Romeo and Juliet. Lord Clapham, a patron who trusts the brothers and raises funds for their troupe, enters to announce that Shakespeare is doing Richard II. The news outrages Nick as Shakespeare has already done Richard III, and the thought of going backwards seems absurd to him. He rants about his hatred of Shakespeare to the troop members who are horrified. Lord Clapham leaves, telling the brothers he is stopping their funds unless they have another play by the next morning. Nigel and Nick go home to their small house, and on the way, Nick encounters Shylock, the Jew. Shylock expresses a desire to help fund the troupe, but Nick rejects him as it is illegal to employ a Jew. B, Nick's wife, 
tells them the events of her day and how she acquired their dinner as she serves it. They are saving for a better life, and when Nick tries to open the money box, B smacks his hand away. B tells him how she could help them out, but Nick is ambivalent. Despite Nick's arguments, B goes out to do jobs that Nick claims are for men. As Nigel sleeps, Nick faces the real reason he hates Shakespeare. The bard makes Nick feel self-conscious. He wishes there was a way to stop Shakespeare and steals from the money box to see a soothsayer. He finds a soothsayer named Thomas Nostradamus, the nephew of the famous soothsayer Nostradamus. Nick asks him what the next big thing in theater will be, and Nostradamus says that it will be a musical a play where an actor is saying his lines, and out of nowhere, he just starts singing. Nick thinks this is ridiculous, but quickly warms up to the idea. Later, Nick meets Nigel on the street. Nigel has just met Portia, the daughter of Brother Jeremiah. They immediately fall in love. Nick tells him that he shouldn't pursue her because she is a Puritan. The Puritans leave, and Nick tells Nigel, what the soothsayer said, but neglects to tell him that it was not Nick's own idea. Nigel wants to do The Brothers from Cornwall, the story of the two brothers' lives, but Nick vetoes that, saying it has to be bigger, and decides to do a play about the Black Death. The troupe performs a song for Lord Clapham, who is disgusted and deserts the troupe. Nigel sits down to try to write a new play. Portia sneaks out to see him, and they discover more about their similarities, especially in the way they both love poetry. A messenger arrives with an invitation for Nigel to attend Shakespeare in the park and an after-party. Nigel explains to Portia that he sent one of his sonnets to the bard for feedback. Nigel asks the messenger if Portia can be his plus one. In the park, Shakespeare performs for the people. Nigel and Portia go to the after party where Portia gets drunk. Shakespeare asks to read Nigel's journal of poems and writings, but Nick runs in with Shylock and chastises Shakespeare for trying to steal Nigel's ideas as well as reprimanding Nigel for his naivete. Brother Jeremiah then runs in to find a drunk Portia and once again admonishes Nigel. In a rage, Nick goes back to Nostradamus with what he has left of the money he stole from the money box. He asks Nostradamus what Shakespeare's new hit is going to be. Nostradamus sees Hamlet, but misinterprets it as omelet. Among other mistakes, such as the prince eating a Danish pastry rather than being a Danish prince. Nick gets excited at the possibilities of success and dreams of a future in which crowds cheer for him and Shakespeare bows down to him. And that is the end of Act One. The minstrel welcomes the audience back and tells them of the stresses that the Bottom Brothers and Shakespeare face. Shakespeare shows the stress he faces while trying to write hits and manage his fame. A spy tells him that the brothers are trying to steal Shakespeare's upcoming hit. An excited Shakespeare decides to disguise himself as Toby Belch and audition for the brothers' troupe in order to steal the play. 
Meanwhile, the troupe is rehearsing Omelette, the musical. Shylock has become their new investor, though they cannot find a title that would make his role legal. When some of the actors become suspicious of Nostradamus and why he is at their theater, Nick lies and says that Nostradamus is an actor. Toby Belch arrives at the theater and is hired for the company. He is surprised to learn that his hit is about eggs. Nigel sneaks out to London Bridge to see Portia, where he reads her another poem about his love for her. He worries about their future together, but Portia reassures him by saying that everyone, even Nick and Brother Jeremiah, will change their minds about the relationship when they hear Nigel's beautiful sonnets. Nigel is not very happy with Omelette and claims that it doesn't feel right. Brother Jeremiah interrupts the lovers and takes Portia away to be imprisoned in a tower for disobeying. Saddened by the loss of his love, Nigel becomes inspired to write a completely different play that is revealed to be Hamlet. Nigel goes into the theater the next day and tells Nick about his new improvements. They get into a huge argument and Shakespeare tries to take advantage of their squabble to get his hit. A hurt Nigel scrambles out onto the street and is confronted by Shakespeare, who steals his hit under the guise of improving it. Later, Nigel runs into B, who explains to him that they should still trust Nick because they can always fall on him if they need him. Nick is having qualms about Omelette the Musical as well, but dismisses these doubts once he learns that the town lined up all the way around the theater for tickets. He and the troupe prepare for the show. Once the audience arrives, they perform a bombastic dance number that has many references to modern-day musicals, such as The Lion King and The Phantom of the Opera. Towards the end of the number, Shakespeare reveals himself and sues the brothers. The troupe and Nigel find out that Nostradamus is a soothsayer and are horrified. In court, Shylock, Nick, Nigel, and Nostradamus are on trial, and Nick is sentenced to beheading. B enters disguised as a lawyer and makes Nick confess that he stole from the money box. She tells the judge that beheading him would be redundant because he has already lost his head. She has made a deal with Shakespeare that they will be exiled to America. She says that they always wanted a new country house and they are getting a house in a new country. Portia then arrives, having escaped the tower. She renounces her father's ideals and joins the Bottoms, Shylock, and Nostradamus in exile. They arrive in America and tell the audience of the new opportunities in the new world. Nick hears about the opening of Shakespeare's newest masterpiece, Hamlet, to which Nostradamus replies, I was this close. The The End. End about the parts we liked and the parts that we really liked because (laughs) let's be real like i don't know about you but i absolutely love this show i don't know if my snaps got picked up by the mic 
but I was snapping my fingers in a Z formation. <laughs> oh my gosh. my age. <clears throat> oh my gosh. No, I absolutely love this show. It was um, so smart. So, so smart. And it, it really just felt like a love letter to the... To the theater lover. Oh, absolutely. Well, just to the theater in general. I loved all the Easter eggs in the show. Like, every time we went back, I discovered something new. That was one thing that I loved. Like, there, there's just so many bits in there. I can't, I can't come up with a better word than Easter eggs. So many gimmicks and, and whatnot put in the show that the first time you see it, you obviously catch the obvious ones, you know. Oh, yeah. But you're just overwhelmed with all of them. That you have to come back again, and then you're like, oh, I didn't notice that one that time. Oh, what about that one? You know? And it's all the way through. It's from the word go all the way through to the end. I mean, the exit music even had the the cat's melody in there and everything. Oh, yeah. The, the, this show jams every single theater reference possible into it. Yeah. And it is, it's, every time it's done, it's fresh and exciting and new. What I loved is that they took... A great they, there's a great story there in there, and they added all these puns and jokes and quips about musical theater in the, well, just theater in general in there. So it's kind of like a jukebox musical, really well written, where they have the story and then they add the songs. So you could tell that they were like, "I've got this great idea for a story. So how can we make it even funnier? Well, we're gonna make fun of these shows. What shows can we make fun of in this moment, rather than being like, "These are the shows I want to make fun of." So yeah. how can we write the story around that? And that's what I love the most because the story definitely was the star of the show. Second, or right up there with it, were all these great jokes to these iconic shows. Well, and it's easy to get lost and make your show like dated by adding too many references. So I think that they did a beautiful job of drawing from old, old theater references all the way up to modern stuff so that the show doesn't become dated. Like, well, and I think it left room block- to add in the future, too. Well, and they also chose such big blockbusters that they are, you know, cemented in theater history. Right. So These iconic things that anybody would totally know what it is, all the way down to these hidden little gems. You know, I, I, we can name them up. There's a great video clip on you. There's two. One shows all the all the shows that were referenced in the number a musical and the other one shows all the shows that were referenced in the show you know i mean one of my favorites is in omelet they do the dream girls thing mm-hmm. so he's cracking all the eggs you gotta crack that egg crack that egg crack that crack that crack that egg and then there's that one egg on the ground and she sends up a hand i am telling you i'm not gonna be an omelet you know it's it's outrageous. It is comedy joy. To add to that, the wordplay was so good. You could tell that these writers understood comedy. I mean, the one thing that comes to my mind right away is, Hello, my name is Thomas Nostradamus, the nephew of the famous Nostradamus. The famous Nostradamus? Yes. How do I know? I promise. Promise? Promise, Nostradamus. You know, there's this great... Like the slapstick vaudeville vaudeville comedy that you don't see a lot of anymore. And so it was a really beautiful... I mean, listen, if you are a theater fan, a theater nerd, or a theater historian, you will love the crap out of the show. Something I think a lot of people don't appreciate, and we usually file it under pace, right? Mm -hmm. Is rhythm and tempo of dialogue. 
And it matters so much when it comes to comedy because a good comedic writer is going to pick certain words so that whether it, it, it mirrors a response or it just has a certain rhythmic pattern that hits the ear just right for that, for that sensation, for that experience. And when you get writers that understand that, you get actors that understand that, you get those bits that work perfectly and it's getting that right tempo, that right speed mm-hmm. that works. You know, I know that you're not the biggest fan of the show, but the, uh, to me, the show that does this best, that is a great example that I think a lot of people know, Family Guy. Family Guy understands this rhythm with wordplay the best because they understand that you can't, you, it would, this bit of Nostradamus would not work if it was like, hello, my name is Thomas Nostradamus. I am the nephew of the famous Nostradamus. You are the nephew of the famous Nostradamus? I am the famous, I am the nephew of the famous Nostradamus. The Nostradamus, I promise, that wouldn't work. You know what I mean? So, you have to understand how that works to, to sell these bits. And it happens all over the place. Another one that I love is when Nigel is reading his love sonnet to Portia. And he's just reading a sonnet. I mean, that's what he's doing. However. The innuendo and it, outuendo. <laughs> oh my God, it's so good. And then of course he, he rushes to the end and he finishes. He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I finished too quickly, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and he, and of course, again, they're talking about a poem. We all, being the sick-minded audience that we are, are giggling about something else. And she responds with, that's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's just comedy gold. It is, it is Mel Brooks comedy gold. And right. then you mix with that, this beautiful music that they've put together that is so addicting. Oh, the music in this show is way underrated. It is so clever and so classic in its composition that it it references like the the golden era of musicals. Yeah, and it is it is so beautifully written. There's so many earworms in there. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, this is a show that you walk away and if you've got six different songs in your head. I guarantee anyone out there spend an hour just listen to the album start to finish. You will leave with at least six of these songs in your head. And I guarantee one of them is going to be a musical. And I also guarantee another one's going to be Welcome to the Renaissance. That yeah. opening number. It's so it's so clever and smart. and It's the opening number you expect from a musical. It yes. has that big, just grandiose bit of it. But then it's also got, you know, we get the backstory that we need in the best way. It, it just ha- it sets the tone for the entire show. And leads us to where we need to go from there. So I love it. The story, like I've mentioned, it was very strong. It was clever. Now, this comment, I mean, look, we had the hindsight of almost 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. This was a really clever take on Shakespeare. And I feel like we've had a lot of different takes of Shakespeare, whether it be like Shakespearean works with like Anne Juliet or, you know, reinterpretations of Shakespeare works, you know. But what I loved about this is we weren't retelling a Shakespearean work. We were toying with the idea about where did Shakespeare get his ideas and really leaning into this idea of did Shakespeare really write all of this or was he a fraud? We were totally leaning into it in the most comedic fashion, you know, because look, Shakespeare... Until someone proves it otherwise, he was one of the greatest playwrights of all time. But we were leading into this 
conspiracy theory in a manner where it wasn't insulting. We could all have a laugh about it. And we did not leave being like, maybe the Bottom Brothers did write it all. Well, and the thing that I think that is just so brilliant about this show is it operates in a human world of like that, of like artists, right? Because it's like, imagine being, it's like, it's like the thought was, God, imagine being an artist trying to also create at the time of Shakespeare. Yeah. Like, what would that be like? And then you start to think about it and it kind of makes you more, you're able to, you're able to connect and give a reference point for what Nick and Nigel are going through a little bit better because we've all experienced this, you know, someone in our lives who is doing great things and we are seeing ourselves as less than of them. So it was an instant way for us to fall in love with the characters. I, I, I think it just, it it covered a lot of bases. There's a lot of different interpretations going down, like you could take from the story. And to me, that's just, you have this hilarious show and yet it has a lot of depth. A clear marking of a great show. So why don't we hop into our little boxes, shall we? Yes. So starting with the set. Now, one thing that I want to say is the other big show for me this season was Fun Home, right? And of course, actually, these two shows were the, the, the most nominated musicals, of, new musicals of the year. And, you know, anytime we talk about these two shows and the Tony Awards, I always mention that, you know, I believe that it came down, when it came down to Best Musical, it came down between these two of Issue versus Spectacle. Fun Home definitely was more of an issue show, and Something Rotten was more of a spectacle show. Well, to kind of build on that, I think that also, in thinking about it that way, you also have to think about what purpose does the Tony Award serve? Right. Did Something Rotten need a Tony Award for Best Musical, or did Fun Home need it to bring more attention? Could this Tony Award do good to help influence audiences to... Keep a show alive. And by, with, by saying that, I do not want to take away the win from Fun Home in mm-hmm. any way. They did deserve it. But the reason why I mention this is these the two top contenders, tying it back to set, what I found interesting is I found the set with something rotten to have a pop-up book feel, which was interesting because Fun Home also had that graphic novel. They both had these book feels to them you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and back to something rotten you know the way it unfolded the set unfolded before us for us to explore it was like exploring a book you know we had the opening number and then like the center the globe if you will open and we're in the bottom or we're in the theater and then it would like close and then you know we're in the bottom you know what I mean like it felt almost like we were turning the pages and a pop-up book would come and we could pull the tabs and make things move you know yeah it was really interesting in that way and so I was like wow I guess pop-up book was the theme that year also I felt like this set overall and tell me if if you thought this too it felt kind of like a Vegas show Yes, asterisk. And like with the pastel color palette and the glitz and the glitter and the simplicity. And I mean, I could see this show playing at a Vegas resort. You know, the, the a musical number, the omelet number, just the way that it was designed, it came off like a Vegas review almost in the best way though. So I think for me, the way I would describe it is if you take the concept of Vegas or even this idea of flats and the fact that we basically instead of making the renaissance 
fit into a Vegas style. It's like they did a Vegas set in the style of the Renaissance. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, Rather yes. than the other direction, it was, yes. you know, like we took the modern concept and then placed the mask of the Renaissance over it, which I just thought was very fun. It kept it from looking dated. Because exactly. especially in this like Tudor Renaissance kind of Elizabethan era, it's really easy for things to look dated and dusty and it didn't look that way at all it looked fresh and clean and new and shiny well obviously we were going to have to incorporate new technologies of some kind and we were going to poke it's a musical it's a comedy we're going to uh, suspend disbelief in some way or the other obviously girls are not going to be going around in in those leggings and the feather costumes and stuff like you know and so to be able to be like how do we get around that? How do we point out that we're in a musical at that point? Like, where's that? Where does that world exist? I thought the set did a really good job in creating that space where it was like, it, it reminded me a lot, truthfully, of the producers. Yes. When we were out of the real world and we were in, I don't want to call it limbo either. It's just in, in, in the, the mind of Bialystaka Bloom, having those moments, I want to be a producer, what have you. And it was like, oh, so this is like the, the showgirl era of the 20s or whatnot. This is great. So I love that. I also love that the set got in on the jokes. Yes. In little places. You know, one is like the soothsayer scene when he goes down there. And you see the different signs that if, you're a, if you are a musical theater buff, you, you know, go back. And if you can find the pictures of the original set, there are Easter eggs hidden on the signs, which I'm like, oh, my God, this is. And actually, Incredible. I think you can find a clip. They're Tony's performance on YouTube. And I think that they have some of the set pieces on there with the signs. Yeah, yeah. I love that the base of the set was the globe, which sort of, you know, again, then the bottom home would kind of come on by the globe. So he's always living in Shakespeare's shadow. Yeah. Which I just love, again, tongue-in-cheek moment. Like, everything is done with a purpose. The globe never went away. Which was, I mean, well, I say never went away. Obviously, it, it did go away a certain, but anyway. And then I love the clever use of different props to mock other shows. Right. And again, this was kind of these, the ideas and then the filter on it was Renaissance themed. And so, like, one of the things I loved was they spoofed a chorus line and they did headshots, but the headshots were, were the, the sketches. Were the yeah, were the wood carving drawings that were popular at the time. Yeah, the pencil like sketch things that you would mm -hmm. see. And so it was like it was like there was this Renaissance filter on all of the modern stuff, which I think is a good fun way to think about it. Yeah. Or or you know, they had the buckets with the brushes from the Annie bit. They used the the canes they were using to dance to put together the sweet charity moment. It, it was just, it was ridiculous. But it was super, super smart in how they were portraying these things. Well, and I think the this will be a great segue into costumes, is I think that the design team was all on the same page in such a beautiful way, which leads us into Greg Barnes's Beautiful costumes. Greg Barnes does amazing work. You know, he, he's just come off winning the Tony for Some Like It Hot. And what's funny is I can, I can kind of see similarities between these two shows, which is ironic. But I loved 
To me, it looked like a metallic palette for these costumes. Lots of coppers and silvers and golds mixed with these beautiful jewel tones of like emeralds and turquoise and opals and pinks, you know, which I really appreciated. In it. Now, when I'm talking about these metallic palettes and stuff, it's more of like these big dance numbers. Their base costumes were very much browns, whites, that kind of thing. But if you look at the bigger dance numbers, they were, you've got these beautiful jewel tones almost like, which created that pastel effect. And so I love that. And so I am going to disagree with you. And I'm going to say that the palette was, especially for Greg Barnes, was very earthy and very... I can accept earthy. Yeah, it was very earthy because normally with Greg Barnes, he's he is known for doing big, beautiful musical theater numbers. Mm -hmm. Like he has that iconic style that helped to influence and create this idea of the showgirl on Broadway, right? Well, the blue jewel, the blue sequin and jewel encrusted outfits from Some Like It Hot that the girls wear. And including who's the lead lady who sang What Are You Thirsty For? in the finale. Who am I thinking of? The character. Sweet Sue. Sweet Sue. And she's in this like tux with tails, but it's blue and it's got all these jewels and gems all over it. Right. So Greg Barnes is known for being a very classical. Yeah. Like a classical costume designer. He helped develop that style. And so you can see his influence in all of the shows he continues to do. So when it came to something rotten, once again, we did Greg Barnes with a renaissance filter on top of it it was almost he, muted because it didn't have all the shine and luster right like but he still used beading and textures because that's one thing that a lot of people tend to start to forget with costumes yes. is the textures of the costumes play an important role yes. and so instead of having that shiny clean smooth texture that greg barnes usually works with he did it using cording and different types of yes. embroidery on the bodices and different stuff like that. And the and so, shape, the shape of everything with the he, puffy pants. And he kept and the, everything in a traditional silhouette, but did a beautiful job of modernizing it. The fact that we had these bum rolls on the females, but still gave them a slender figure is gorgeous because I think when it comes to Greg Barnes, especially in the costume design of the chorus members, because this also gets into musical theater theory about how when you're doing a musical there's this idea that audience suspends its disbelief and it does transport you into this new world where people just start singing and suddenly everyone knows the choreography so one of the ways you can help get the audience to buy into that is to use your chorus as a tool to help pull the audience into the fantasy world so you keep your you keep your leads in more traditional historically accurate silhouettes and then you use your ensemble to push the modern voice in that silhouette. And Greg Barnes does a beautiful job doing that. Like, go back and look at the photos, especially of like B and Portia. They are in very traditional silhouettes. Even even the the brothers and everyone. But then there's just tiny hints that flatter the body in a way that is a modern way. You know, we look at like the way that the the concept of what people find beautiful changes throughout the decades and throughout the centuries right and and during the renaissance it was very much to have a bulkier silhouette but greg barnes to make it more appealing to a modern audience takes it and goes well what does the 
modern audience find sexually appealing or even just appealing, and those are the parts that he amped up. So you see more cleavage than you would have, but he still remains within a well-researched historical place. And I think that that's where his brilliance is. And that is the thing that made this show for me so easily bought into because I was able to go, oh, I get who each person's supposed to be, but I can still suspend my disbelief and have fun with it and understand that we are in a pretend play world. You know, people don't just randomly start singing, but in this world they do. So that's what I'm buying into. And Greg Barnes is always excellent at that. And the fact that he can keep his same artistic voice that is easily recognizable in any show he does, and yet still put that filter of each different world in, I think is brilliant. And I think that something rotten is the thing that makes that case the most. Yeah, I agree. I also want to add to that, you know, one of the things I like when you were talking about keeping it to the classic Renaissance look, but also adding that modern flair. One character that comes to mind is within the troupe, you have... You know, of course, again, back in this time, women were not allowed to act. So you have that male character who is playing all the female roles. And of course, in this show, they're leaning into the idea that he's a little too into this. Well, looking at the costumes that this particular character is wearing, it is very much traditional to the time, especially with the headpieces that they were wearing and everything. You know, it was really, really fantastic and silly when... That character didn't necessarily need all of that, but they they really dove into that. And they're like, no, if he's going to play the queen, he's going to have this full on huge headdress and he's going to be mourning and, you know, and it was like, okay. And you then learn again that this character is diving a little too much into their character. They like playing dress up a little too much. And of course, when we see their face, they're wearing makeup, which all the other actors are like. Hey, you know, it's it's really just that that level of detail that makes it all the better. I want to continue this conversation, and I only have one word. Eggs. No, no, no. You know what? Two words. Dancing. Eggs. Yes. I feel like any other show, when you would have something so absurd as this, like... This would be a complete. This is this is where the show has gone off the rails. You know, I would like to just be in that production meeting where they're going through and they're like, okay, and then we'll get to this number. We're gonna need some eggs. We need some egg costumes, like just to you know. And then be in that shop where they're like, we're taking your measurements. We're going to construct some egg costumes that then have to have like yellow string that comes out to show that like you're getting cracked. You know what I mean? Like that conversation. I just wish I could have heard because how weird is that? The last time we saw something like this was, of course, Bullets Over Broadway, where they came out in all hot dog. Right, and they outfits. came out in that very Susan Stroman style of showgirl. Right. Now this, I, again, I was like, oh no, they're coming out in egg <laughs> costumes. But it worked. It was so, and I mean, look, it wasn't just the costume that worked, but it was a mix of the music and the book and everything. You know what I mean? Everything worked together to just be like, oh yeah, why wouldn't you have dancing eggs? But it's just one of those like, eggs? Oh, okay, and you know, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves at this moment, but getting to see those egg costumes <laughs> hung and prepped backstage, I was like, this is so surreal. I, I just can't believe I'm seeing 
egg costumes hanging and prepped. <laughs> like, I never would have thought that was a thing, you know. But I guess after Spider-Man, anything's possible at this point, you know. Right. I do want to touch on one thing that, uh, uh, that we haven't mentioned that I'm sure you're going to build on. But I love the wigs in the show. Yeah, the wigs did a beautiful job of blending that that historical silhouette with a modern silhouette because yes. they did not I mean listen, the renaissance for hair was very boring because unless you were Queen Elizabeth or in the court, you didn't get to have fun hair. You covered it up. Or That's... you were that one actor playing all the female roles. Right, but so you know you know what I mean? So that's kind of it it was a very boring time period for hair. And so the fact that they used modern hair styles to go with the historical silhouettes really just helped us, helped me dive into this world and go, ah, yes, this is this is what we're doing. Well, it's like our friend Courtney Aventosh, who was in the ensemble, I'm thinking back to her wig that she had in the opening number that had the two huge bumps, you know, mm-hmm. and, and and then it was long. I was like, that looks so clever. You know, it just, it added, well, and what I thought it was clever about, not only did it add shape, but it added a height. And it was particularly right. with the ensemble and the dancers because we did have those kick lines and whatnot. You needed to add height. So there's a little smart design thing in there, you know. But it was. It was just clever. The person who actually stood out the most to me, not an ensemble, not a chorus girl, Thomas Nostradamus. The hair and the eyebrows. Because, listen, friends, Google Brad Oscar. Who, by the way, I feel so honored that I get to ride the train every now and then with. Uh, it's so cool to be sitting on the on the train, reading a book, look up, and there's Brad Oscar. And I'm just like inside freaking out because I absolutely love Brad Oscar and everything he's done. From the producers to this to Mrs. Doubtfire. I mean, he's just, he's a brilliant actor. But if you look at what he looks like. In real life. And then you see what he looks like as Thomas Nostradamus. He does not have grandpa eyebrows in real life. And all the makeup that he had to get put on. And that crazy wild man. I mean, it was just a triumph in that world of makeup and hair to make him look that way. He definitely was the one getting the most work done for that show. And it was so brilliant. So brilliant. And I loved it. I was living for it. So, are you ready to move on to lights? Should we go into yeah, our lights? Yeah, I think lights? the lighting palette is the next beautiful thing we can talk about. So, again, I thought it was similar to the costumes, in my opinion. It had those jewel tones, the pastel colors, the pinks, the turquoise, aquas, blah, blah, blah. And then in contrast, when we weren't doing these beautiful dance numbers, we were having these bright white lights. Mm-hmm. We were not getting our soft white or soft yellow like we normally get in plays and whatnot. We were totally musical here's your high in energy because it was a high energy show but again i will amend my palette name of jewel tone to earth tones because i i definitely see what you're saying it still has that vegas feel to me again i go back to that the number a musical when i'm thinking of the back they've got like the sun uh-huh it looks like the sun in the back but it's all the different light rays you know yeah well, or even when we get to, we see the light or whatever in Act 2 with Nigel and Portia, where we get the rainbows coming in in the costumes, and then there are rainbows in the lighting. Yep. Because it's like, oh, you know what's going to make everyone happy? Rainbows. Rainbows make everything better. <laughs> right, that well, just means happy. <laughs> the during willpower, the first time we actually meet Shakespeare, mm-hmm. they have these, co- so it's Shakespeare in the park, 
Mm -hmm. of course. And they have these colored lanterns that come down that are supposed to act as stage lights back then, right? Right. That they're like hanging in the trees. But they also double as actual like lights as well. And they're all different colors, which is great because... Of course they didn't have colored lights and lanterns back then. But it's supposed to create, because while he's up there singing like a rock version of his, you know, Shall I compare thee to a summer's rose? Yeah. Or summer's day? Yeah. Wow, <laughs> I was like, I, where are you going with that love? Whoa, shame on me. Anyway, you know, but they've got these colored lanterns and it's supposed to create that rock concert feel. And I was like, this is just... Silly, and, and you, I'm here for it. You had to go just silly enough. Like, you had to go so far silly that it's like, yeah, why wouldn't we have rock lights? Well, you know what? I, we have to move on to direction then, you know? Yeah. Because uh, this is this is the thing. First of all, comedy is all about timing, and Casey knows his timing. If you don't know Casey Nicola's resume by now, I mean, he's got shows like, of course, most recently, Some Like a Hot, but he's also got the Book of Mormon. He's got, he helped, he did Aladdin. He did The Prom. He did Mean Girls. He did Mean Girls. Casey knows comedy, which is brilliant. And this was brilliant direction. The story was so full and connected. We didn't get so silly that we lost sight of the story. The jokes were fresh and alive. I mean, the number of times we have seen this show, and yet the jokes were just so... It was like hearing it for the first time. What was clever is like the show was punny and quirky and absurd, and it was so all those right up to the line of being annoying, Mm -hmm. which made it perfectly. Like, you've got to go just far enough off the deep end, that it doesn't lose itself, but it was committed enough for all the bits to be sold to the audience. Like if you, if he had scaled it back, pulled it back just a little, all these bits wouldn't have worked. It would have been like, why are we dancing with eggs? Why are we singing right. a rock version of sonnets? Like these, these bits wouldn't work, but because they leaned so far into it, it was right at that sweet spot. It was 88 miles an hour. You know, yeah. Da back to the future joke inserted there. Yeah, because if it had been, if they leaned just, a, you know, this this was a show where you couldn't milk things. You know, if you did, it ruins everything. It takes right. it way it really, too far out. It really relies on old comedy practices to be like to make it work. And I think that's one of the things that makes it beautiful is this show, from top to bottom, is a beautiful blend of. Old school theater and new school theater. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't something... This is something that is very hard to teach. But it's more something you you just know. Like, you, you see it and you go, yes, yes. You know, there's a lot of rules in comedy, I think, that people don't understand. For instance, one thing is the rule of three. And I'm going to pull out an example I gave earlier. Family Guy. We were watching Family Guy last night. You were watching an episode, and they made a clever joke, and they repeated it a total of three times. And that third time was the funniest of them, but if it had done it a fourth, that's when we would have been like, okay, this this bit's dry. Like, move on, right? Mm -hmm. They understand the rule of three. This show, again, also understands the rule of three. They understand we can only introduce a gimmick, even if the answer changes this many times. They understand the rules of comedy, how they can give it to an audience, how to display it. And they play within those rules. They bend certain rules just enough that it's still enjoyable. But 
These are things that you don't learn in college. These are things that you don't necessarily even learn unless you experience it or you get around someone like Casey Nicola, who's just a comedic genius who understands it. And, and that's where you have to gather it from. And then when you see it, you need to see it often enough to be able to repeat it. Mel Brooks is another person, like if you look at enough Mel Brooks or you watch him work, you start to pick up and understand why bits of his work, why does everybody know, can quote Robin Hood Men in Tights or Spaceballs or whatnot? Well, there's a reason because there is, there is a science to comedy. Right, and also if you are someone who is wanting to write comedic plays and learn more about that i also think it's worth looking into neil simon because this is a oh, very yeah. neil simon type comedy where yeah. it really plays on the banter and the pacing of the banter yes and casey understands that to a beautiful point yeah and then building on that the dynamic characters that were developed that play off of each other were amazing you know everybody and all these characters were so deeply developed and they were also so dynamic and opposite what i loved is we had our surface character that usually spoke to each other mm -hmm. but then as the conversation continued we saw the actual person beneath the per and the person i think this rings true the most about is brother jeremiah Mm -hmm. who he would walk in and he would say his proclaiming line but then it would finish with a very gay entendre double entendre and then he would like exit very you know just ooh, you know really? and he yeah and he had this snm vibe about him you know and it was like hmm i'm getting a vibe from you and and to me that's what he is really underneath the cloak if you will and well, that and was I... smart that's smart writing though that's smart directing to be like this is your this is your primary objective this is your sub objective Right, and also in keeping in mind that stereotypes exist, so let's play with them. Yes. Not let's let's not you know enforce them. Let's play with them. And I think that this, you know, I think that that is something that, you know, this entire group is good at, which I think is a great lead in into choreography. Oh my god! Because it is it is all it's a stereotype, yet not a stereotype at all. This is a Casey Nicholas show. One look at the choreography, the opening number alone, screamed his choreography. And if you didn't know then, by the time we rolled into, I think it's the third or fourth number in, a musical, you knew by then. Uh, for those who don't know, for, for those of you who've never seen a Casey Nicholas show, Casey Nicholas shows, because he directs and choreographs, typically the opening number, it's going to leave you breathless between... A big opening number singing, and then Casey Nicholas' choreography is always just go, 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 huge go. and go. I mean, something like it hot, that that chase scene at oh the end gosh. was insane. Still to this day, insane. So of course he got the Tony for best right. choreography. Right, but then I also think back to like The Prom and Mean Girls, and it was just go, go, go. It's just these huge, elaborate cardio dance numbers. Uh, yeah. Aladdin, Friend Like Me, you know what I mean? Book mm -hmm. of Mormon. These huge dance numbers turn it off in that. I mean, he doesn't do anything small. Casey Nicola will never be known like Bob Fosse for these small movements. No, he does these big show-stopping numbers. So from the word go, without even looking at the playbill or whatever, I was like, oh, it's Casey Nicola's show. Look at the way they're all moving. 
And I love the variety of styles that also existed within this. I love that the dancing was obviously modern. I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, this is where I wish I had a face for video, not just a face for radio, but you know, in the opening number where all the chorus girls are behind the velvet robe and they shake their hands above the their head as they're introducing the different authors and then they grab their elbow and they sink into their hip and they point as they're walking by. Mm-hmm. It's a very modern move. You know, right. but then he brings in more of these classics. There's these beautiful juxtaposition of movement that he brings in. You know, the way that the the cast would move and other things like we see the light or mm. at the, this bottom is going to be on top. And tying into that, I mean, speaking of the number of musical, I love the different throwbacks to the different shows. He really showed off his well-rounded knowledge of the musical theater tone because yes these are all again this is part of the easter egg yes a lot of these moments are iconic the sweet charity the chorus line all you know there's a west side story you know stand back and there's a navita it's a musical you know mm-hmm. but if you go and you watch the way this is the key if you watch the way the actors are transitioning they're transitioning in the style which is so bright, and I'm like, Casey knows this stuff. I want to say he did his homework, but I almost just feel like he just knows it. And he's like, these are the different choreographers we're featuring. This is the Bob Fosse bit. This is the Michael Bennett bit, you know? Mm-hmm. And that just, to me, was so, so brilliant. It just added to the love letter that is this show. And also, it's tap. Mm. There's tap. There is so much tap throughout the show. And I think that tap is an underrated choreography and it is underused in musical theater in a modern way. Because I think that tap is such a American form of dance. You know, it's funny that you say that because I feel the same way, right? Mm -hmm. But ironically, without fail, every year there's at least one, if not more, shows on Broadway that incorporate dance. Now, that being said, I don't think a lot of shows outside of Broadway do tap. No. And so that's why I'm with you where I'm like, tap needs to come back. We need, look, it's 2024. Let's make this the year of tap because it's so impressive. Tap is not something, like, it's on, it's on. It's two-dimensional because not only is it physical, like we're watching you, but we have to also hear it. So if you don't hit one of the clicks, something is off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when you see a great tapper, like, oh my God, I'm his name is, is leaving me, but he was in Funny Girl. Watching his performance, I was like, Gregory Hines 2.0. It was incredible. It was absolutely mind-blowing. It, 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 oh, it. I wanted, I could have just watched a show of him. It was amazing. And for anybody wondering, of course, that amazing artist's name is Isaiah Harris. He was just, holy cow, was he good. <laughs> so, yeah, let's bring back Tap. And I feel also that is another trademark of Casey Nicola. I Now that I think about it, all of his shows have had Tap. Uh, I don't know if the... Prom had tap though. I, I don't, don't think, think the prom, prom had. Oh wait, yes, give it some zazz. Didn't give it some. I think maybe give it some zazz did have tap, but yeah, that all, every other Casey Nicholas show I can think of had tap, which is amazing. 
The show has had several notable performers, including Brian Darcy James, Rob McClure, John Cariani, Christian Borle, Adam Pascal, Heidi Blickenstaff, Brad Oscar, Brooks Ashmancas, Michael James Scott, Will Chase, Leslie Kritzer, Linda Griffin, and Courtney Ivintosh. talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history so theatrical impact it's a brilliant love letter to the theater it's right there with the producers you know what i mean i don't think that this story added some new you know tale like a fun home like a kimberly akimbo like a color purple you know not in some new person's perspective of things but i do think that this was a great new love letter to the theater. And adequately so, roughly, you know, uh, 10 years, uh, 15 years after the producers, with so much changing in the theater, it was great to like, here's another love letter well, to and you. And I think it just re- it introduced, it reintroduced some stock characters for people because I think that's one thing that people tend to forget as we get to a more inclusive area of theater is there are these stock character tropes like Commedia dell'arte that are that we exist and incorporate into our shows mm-hmm. and having those kind of characters more material for those kind of characters into the show are great because it's just going to show us that we can still have these characters and have anyone play them so the fact that we have all of these different you know just new material for people to use to help continue to develop our stock, our musical theater stock characters. Right, right. And I mean, like I said, this wasn't a show that contributed any new points of view. It just gave us these characters. Because I think that's something a lot of people don't realize. They see funny musicals and they go, oh, well, you have a show like Beetlejuice that's hilarious or something. And it's like, yeah, but we got the story of Beetlejuice from that. We never had a show like Beetlejuice. Another funny, I would say your show even is a musical comedy. But we've never had that story before. We don't know these characters. These characters don't exist in any other form yet. With Something Rotten, we have stories similar to this, you know. Mm -hmm. But we don't have... It it was a modern version of these characters, even though they're based in the Renaissance. And it was a great way to be like, isn't the theater just so fantastic? And look how many people honestly got this close to success. And then it was like... You know, right, because this also this Jingleberg. show is right because this show is also a you know a good a good cash cow for regional theaters. Uh, be- exactly, yeah. Because it's a big it's a big fun funny show that's accessible to an older theater crowd and a newer theater. It's crowd. It's accessible also for theaters from community to Broadway. This is a show that can be done on a low budget or a big budget. The story and the songs are the the meat and the potatoes of the show. So you could do this on any budget, and that's what also makes it accessible. You don't... It it plays to all audiences everywhere. Mm -hmm. I would also like to say that and add that it's 
added some great hits to the musical theater tone. We keep talking about earworms. I mean, the entire time we've been talking as we go through the show, I don't necessarily remember particular scenes, but I'm literally going through the song catalog. I'm like, okay, but da, 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 da. there's that part. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it did. I mean, the number of musical is iconic. It is the first show that I attended where there was a mid like a mid act standing ovation yeah that went on and on it will it is up there with friend like me from Aladdin and one from a chorus line and one day more from Les Mis you know it is that big of a moment now so besides that I think that was it in my opinion for theatrical impact in regards to societal impact, I kind of want to build on what you said regarding accessibility for theater audiences. I think it did attract a new audience to the theater to see the silliness that was a show. I mean, they, again, I keep saying the phrase they leaned in, but they did. They leaned into the silliness. They weren't trying to be a big musical, a blah, blah, blah. We're a Broadway musical. They totally leaned in to their title, to their just the tomfoolery of it all in their ads This is a ham and cheese musical. It's a ham and cheese musical because it makes us laugh because it's cheesy, but it's sturdy like ham. Yes, yes. <laughs> it reminded me, if you go back and you try, if you can find the old ads for Peter and the Starcatcher on Broadway that have Christian Borel, and I can't remember the other actors, anybody plays Smee. And I mean, it's like these terrible, like public access commercials that people do them for themselves, you know? And they are, they're almost like anti-commercials, you know? That's what they were putting out. And I think it attracted people because normally when you see ads for Broadway shows, they're doing like the, a New York Times critic's pick, groundbreaking, so-and-so gives a performance of a lifetime, make sure you don't miss four weeks only. And they were like, Broadway's biggest Blah, you know, flop comes from the William Shakespeare. Something is terrible on Shakespeare. What does that smell? Blah, 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 you know? Right. And I was like, what are they doing? And yet it did get good reviews as a thing. Well, because here's the thing. Even if you're not a theater person, you know who William Shakespeare is because we've had to study William Shakespeare in school and, you know, Western English cultures. And so the fact that, you know, if... If, you know, if you think about the average Joe, the person who maybe isn't a theater goer, but then they see that we're making fun of Shakespeare, they might actually go, you know what? I can at least relate to that because I hated studying Shakespeare in in school. And so it just made it relatable on so many levels because you have your basic no understanding and then you have people like us who are like, no, the entire catalog of Shakespeare and the entire catalog of musical theater and go... Oh my God, this is hilarious. So it it crosses the different levels of knowledge. And I would even go as far as to say the different classes of people who view theater. Yeah. I, I, well, and I would also say that it brought theater lovers of all kinds to see the show to try to find the Easter eggs. You know? Uh-huh. I see what you did there. Eggs. <laughs> you know, I said it earlier. I didn't make the connection, but now... Wow. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting. I've been waiting. I'm clever. And I didn't even realize <laughs> it. Anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, you, you've got these, you've got people who don't normally go to the theater who wanted to come for the silliness. And you've got diehard theater lovers that are like, I'm going to come and I'm going to find every single, you know, hidden thing in there. Which is brilliant. And it's like, let's all go to the, do this together. And so, together, between 
all of that, I feel like this show exposed audiences to countless other shows besides their own, which was great. Because I would love it in a perfect world where cell phones don't exist. And I understand what that would do for us because that makes it hard for people to listen to us or interact with us on Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. But you would have, hopefully, two of these people sitting next to each other, a new audience member and a theater lover. And at intermission, they would talk to each other about what they just saw. And then hopefully that theater lover would be like, did you catch the West Side Story moment or the, or the Sweet Charity moment? And the, other, the new theater person was like, I don't know what those shows are, but I did recognize the Annie moment. And they would have a conversation and they might start talking about it. And one thing leads to another. And pretty soon that new theater person wants to go, oh, I want to explore because I like that right, music. Because it's inspiring to hear things. Like if, if you watch someone else laugh at something and you don't get it, you either, one, get offended, or two, you want to know more. And right. this show is great at making you want to know more. So let's ask the question, is this show still relevant? Hell yeah. I love this show. And I think that it's just laugh out loud funny with a very fun and solid message. Because one thing we didn't talk about is the good solid female empowerment message that exists in this too. The fact that you have Portia stand up to her father in the end and go, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And the role of B. B is a strong female character that's like, I'm going to provide for us, I'm going to take care of us, and no man's going to tell me what to do and how to do it, is brilliant. Could there be a stronger female writing in this? Absolutely. But considering the time placement of the show and everything, I say bravo to that. It is perfect for any theater, in my opinion, especially community, collegiate, and regional, which has been great for it, you know, the last while. I think it could play Broadway and be just fine. I do think it should wait another couple years before being revived. You know, and it just, let, let's let's wait, hold on a minute. But with how silly it is, the show is not constricted to a certain time or world event series. Mm-hmm. Like we don't need to wait until World War Three and be like, man, I really need some cheering up. Let's bring that in. Likewise, we don't have to be like, oh, it's the 20th anniversary of something rotten. Let's bring it on Broadway. It isn't restricted by those. So when we feel like blowing the dust off it and bringing it back, great. When we're ready, the show's ready to go again. What I would love for this show is, considering it has a strong female voice during the Elizabethan time, you, you got to look back in history. Like, Because as a woman, I look back and how, how could it have been empowering for women to have a queen that's ruling the land? Right? And so I think to do this show again with a female director and a, you know, a female-led design team to help bring that subtext of the voice out a little bit, I think could be very fun. And that would be something fun to explore on a Broadway revival in the next, like, five years. Or if we get a female president, I think that that would be the perfect time to revive it with a stronger female voice. Humor me on this. Either Susan Stroman or Camilla Brown directing choreography. Choreographing this. Partic- I, I lean towards Susan Stroman because of the tap, but Camilla Brown, who did most recently did For Color Girls Who've Ever Considered Suicide When the Rainbow's Not Enough, and she's about to choreograph Hell's Kitchen. Mm-hmm. I'm right. just that. This, ooh, it could be. I think it would be a fun exploration because it's already a good show that doesn't have a strong agenda. 
So no. I think that finding the right female voice that can help bring the subtext of an agenda through without altering the story, I yeah. think would be fun because I think that this show has potential for that. We, we just need to, to wait a little longer because we need... Uh, the best way to put it is we need to forget the jokes. Yeah. So that they're fresh. We don't go back and go... Oh, yeah, yeah. We wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. Oh, we experienced the show, all right. We had the good fortune of seeing the show three times? Four times. Four times on Broadway between 2015 and 2016. And then once in 2018 in Salt Lake City. So rack them up. Oh, when it was on tour. Yeah, that's five times. So first of all, I love the show. I absolutely adore the show. Getting to see the show... Was incredible. We booked our tickets the first time to see it because this is, again, during the time where it was like, Broadway show, done. I don't care what it's about. And it was hard to kind of find out what the show exactly was about. There was a sort of a synopsis, but... Not really. And you you really only had... They didn't even have huge social media presence to try to no. figure it out. You just had kind of what you could find on Playbill. Well, this is when Broadway shows... This is right at the beginning when Broadway shows really started to go ham in social media but it was hard to find like ads or whatnot and then seeing the performance at the tonys i was like oh and i mean to be fair first intro was when they released like the you know the little clips of the nominated shows and i was like oh okay what's but of course we had a we had two friends in the show linda griffin who pioneer theater alum you know wonderful wonderful person and her husband tom is also amazing he's a music director and of course our dear friend courtney ivantosh who we've spoken about before on our show about wicked who's the nicest human in the world shout out to courtney ivantosh we love her so we kind of knew about the show in that respect as well so we booked our tickets but not knowing exactly what the show was all about and when we got to see it for the first time i was like this is Genius. This is musical theater genius. I am living for it. And I can remember the next year, 2016, when we were there, loving the show so much that we were supposed to go see another show one evening. And I ended up selling those tickets and buying tickets to see something rotten again because I was just like, I, I, I want to go see this. I, I have to go see this. Plus, it was right before our, our friend Courtney was leaving to go back to Wicked. So we wanted to go see her again. So that was just amazing. And kind of speaking of Courtney, this is the first time we got to go backstage at the St. James. Right. And that is also where I didn't realize it then, but a lot of the people who I would go on to work with at Some Like It Hot worked at Something Rotten. Yeah. <laughs> but seeing the backstage of the St. James, because anyone out there who has been to the St. James, the theater is huge, enormous. It's one of the largest theaters on Broadway. But... The theater is huge. The stage, not so much. It's, it's itty bitty. Yeah. Now, it was a rake stage, which I now have learned that more stages are not raked anymore. Probably because it's really hard on dancers. Yeah, it's really rough on the body, especially when you're doing the fantastical choreography that is expected of Broadway in the modern age. And in heels, particularly for, well, I would say particularly for women, but I can think of like Wicked, where there are men in heels. Well, but it, it has not even to do with the heels, just the fact of your body 
doing the kind of heavy, intense, repetitive motion on, on a rake, rake is terrible for your back, knees, joint, all but, of them. But you would just seeing how small the stage, and when I say small, I mean width-wise, from the lip to the back, but also seeing the amount of stuff stored up above in the wings. And of course, I mean, we, we've known this, but I mean, it is it was fantastical to see the number of items stored. And then we got to see all the eggs mm-hmm. all stage. We got to go underneath and see the dressing rooms and all that. It was just incredible to see everything in the St. James. And it was just so wonderful. And we got a beautiful picture with Courtney, which we'll try to find and maybe share with all of you. She's, I hope she's listening because we love her. She's amazing. I just wish nothing but the best for her. And speaking of friends involved with the show, I do want to give a shout out actually to a classmate of mine from the University of Utah Musical Theater Program. Keely McCormick was actually on the non-equity tour of this. Oh, nice. I and love Keely. She is another wonderful human that I wish nothing but success for. And this was her first tour. And when she announced that she had booked it, I was so happy because I was like, this is, this is just an incredible show. And you are an incredible... She's an incredible actress, she's an incredible dancer, she's an incredible singer, triple threat, get it girl. But she, I knew that this was a perfect show for her. And I, I, I'm sure she's doing a million things these days. So yeah, we've had many people that have been involved in the show. But it's just a incredible show top to bottom. Wonderful memories associated with this. I love this show. You'll be able to catch Something Rotten at a theater near you, hopefully sometime soon. We also want to remind you that you can become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues and Billy Murray. Oh,